Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. You're certainly familiar with the rabbit. You probably know about the mice. You might have even encountered a certain fishing gentleman frog. But what about the mysteries of mushrooms, the salvation of sheep, and the niceties of the National Trust? Stay tuned. Let's talk about Beatrix Potter. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1866, Jesse James held up his first bank in Liberty, Missouri. Lucy B. Hobbs became the first U.S. woman to earn her DDS degree. Andrew Johnson, he was the U.S. president between Abe Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, vetoed the Civil Rights Bill, which was then overwritten by Congress and became the 14th Amendment. Andrew Rankin patented the urinal. Jay Osterholt patented the tin can with a key opener. Butch Cassidy and Sullivan, H.G. Wells were all born. And on July 28, 1866, Helen Beatrix Potter entered this world. Helen Beatrix Potter was born on July 28, 1866, in London at Number 2 Bolton Gardens. She was the eldest of the two children of Rupert and Helen Leach Potter. So both Papa and Mama had inherited considerable fortunes from their parents in the cotton industry, printing on one side and mills on the other side. They were part of this fortunate second generation of wealth who never had anything official to do. Papa was technically a barrister and a solicitor, but there's no evidence that he actually ever had a case at all. There's the mark of a gentleman. I, uh, in fact, um, Beatrix once told someone that one time he thought he had a case, and he kind of got a little panicked, but it turned out to be a practical joke. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I put lawyer in quotes. He had a practice, but he didn't practice. I think it's interesting that both of them were the offspring of the pull-themselves-up-by-the-bootstraps working class guy. That's how their parents made their money. But they, in that one generation, they're so distanced from it. That's, that's the, what money does. That's what new money Yes. Does. So we'll yes. talk about that later. <laughs> well, Grandpapa, bootstrap Grandpapa, had become an MP, which is a member of parliament for we Americans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he retired to the country. Country gentleman, first generation, bye-bye. But life at number two was really pretty regimented. Life went by the strict schedule of that clock. We've seen it at Downton, at least the first couple of seasons, yeah. you know, certain hours for certain things with very little deviation. And it's kind of necessary when you have six servants trying to do their certain task, it really eases it along if they know where the family's going to be at any given time. And knowing what I now know about Helen, however, I think that even if that wasn't the case, she probably would have regimented the whole thing. You know, she was very much a con in control Kind of, you can woman. say controlling. It's okay, <laughs> she was okay. Yes, she was controlling. She was respectable with a capital R. I wrote down here. I wonder if new money is more concerned with the proprieties. Oh, like we know what we're doing. A lot of times, the person that you know that has the most money wears like ripped jeans and old t-shirts, and they wouldn't look like you would expect them to look. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing. And where they lived in, in that area, it was full of people just like them. People that are climbing up the social ladder but have a lot of money to bolster them. You think someone at this social level would have a ginormous pool of in their circle? And they didn't really have as much as I would have imagined, I guess, you know, that, to pull from as far as 
people to visit and visiting people. But, you know, that she was involved in her philanthropic organizations, and she did her needlepoint. The main problem of family life in this neighborhood and at this time was finding something to do. Ladies weren't supposed to do all that much. In fact, I think for Mama's case, embroidery saved her reason. (laughs) I have to tell you one thing I was very impressed by, Helen Potter. This is so crazy. I, I guess I never thought that someone literally has to do this. It's not an automated process. Helen Potter worked hard to translate books into Braille. Yes. By hand. I know. And think about what we had said just a little while ago. Annie Sullivan was born the same year as Beatrix. So this is something that had the Braille alphabet and the Braille books had worked up enough that society ladies were translating them. I just think that's a very valuable. I mean, you know, we might poo-poo Helen, but like. Yeah, I'm not going to poo-poo her. Well, I am. (laughs) Well, she was actually a really good painter, too. Uh, Some of her sketches, you can kind of tell where Beatrix Potter gets it. Though Papa was a painter. Yeah. Came from both sides. Yeah, they both had um, artistic talents. And uh, Rupert spent a lot of time walking in the artistic circles, I guess. He was friends with John Everett Millay. He was quite a famous painter by this time. And Papa got to take an interest in this new dry plate photography. And I want you to remember, during the Alice in Wonderland podcast, Lewis Carroll got sucked into that nerd hobby, too. (laughs) I mean, this isn't like Snap-O-Matic Polaroid situation. You had to drag a lot of equipment with you, and Lewis Carroll got into it so heavily, and so did Beatrix's father. He would use his photography to help his friend, the painter, when the model had to go home, here's your photograph. You can keep working. Mm -hmm. John Everett Millay, famous painter, said to him, you have a better eye than all these professionals. I really appreciate this. You're yeah. really good at this. Oh, yeah. That was praise from a good friend. Although, I have to say, most of the day, Papa was at his club with the newspaper over his face. Yes. <laughs> he was busy, of course. This is why we have so many, comparatively, photos of Beatrix and her brother. Because any other person whose Papa didn't have the resources and the ability to use that photographic equipment, we don't have this many photos of. But Mm -hmm. there are a lot. It doesn't compete with the photos on my iPhone. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Or the photos of the Romanovs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was huge. That was a huge library of photos. Anyway, they had moved into this house because they were starting a family. They needed a bigger house to, to house them in. It was just what was done. The third floor of this house was where Beatrix's nursery was. It was also where Beatrix's room was for a huge chunk of the rest of her life. Well, I hope that Beatrix got to hang out with the servants. Like, you always see Manor House and and Downton Abbey, but there's really no evidence. Hmm, not in London, anyway. And her brother Bertram was born when she was five. But by the time he got to a good companion age, he was sent away to boarding school at seven years old, which makes me... Okay, I think we should just talk with the birds in the background because it's so very Beatrix Potter. All right. Don't you think? I also think it's very good that we do not understand bird language (laughs) because he is probably cursing right now, telling somebody to get out of his bush (laughs) or away from his girlfriend, most likely. So, yes, okay, so if you hear loud birds in the background, that's because there's foliage just outside the window in early spring and all the birds have come back from wherever they've been hiding. Well, Beatrice was probably pretty lonely, at least alone. She'd get books out of the cases downstairs and copy the illustrations or draw her miniature menagerie she had up there on the top floor. Rabbits and kittens, which were legal. 
parent-wise, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also lizards, bats, mice, frogs, bugs. Not so welcome, no, perhaps. She would sneak some stuff up in, in bags. But the governess knew they were there. You know, mom and dad might not. But they were allowed. I think mom and dad hardly knew she was there, no. frankly. <laughs> Her first governess, Miss Hammond, was very kind and intelligent and a very good companion. She was there to teach reading and writing and some languages. Beatrix Potter ended up fluent in German. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was a must-have for people of the social class to have a Scottish nanny. And that's what Miss Hammond was. But... In addition to teaching her the things that she needed to teach to her, because Beatrix wasn't going to go to school like Bertram did, Mm -hmm. she also told her lots of stories, you know, fairy stories and stories about magical forests. At a very young age, Beatrix is getting these things in her brain, and they're exciting stories for her. She also used to say... What was it? Like, there's a monster in your bed that's going to eat your feet if you get out of this bed in the night. And I'm like, oh, that's a really transparent tactic that works for a while. Yeah, it sure does. And we talked about this in Alice in Wonderland, about the violence in children's literature back then. But that's was consistent with that. Those stories were. Well, thank goodness I was never sent to school, Beatrix said. If I hadn't been killed with the shyness, it would have rubbed off all my originality. And that's what I think of school today, mostly. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I I love that she she was very young when she said that. You know, mm-hmm. you could recognize that she was a little bit different than a lot of kids. So Bolton Gardens was a quiet place to study, you know, not so much a haven for her. In fact, later when it was destroyed by the German bombs during World War II, she called it, quote, my unloved birthplace. She has no happy feelings. But the country... The country. First, Grandpapa Potter's country estate in Hertfordshire called Canfield Place. And I love this. Her strongest and earliest memories of that were of eating new hot bread and drinking fresh milk with the smell of hay and the sounds of birds and animals in her ears. And then her parents, influenced by Papa's friend John Everett Millay and his famous friends, this is the social climbing again, um, yeah, Lily Langtry, mistress of the Prince of Wales, was one of the guests up there, for example. Um, they began to rent a house in Scotland every summer, Doll Guy's house, and that little free son of content just blossomed. She was just full of love for this house and the woods and the river, and it was just peaceful and beautiful and it just touched her spirit everything was romantic she called this place her own personal landscape of happiness which it was so different than her life in london you know there it was regimented and she never really saw anybody other than her governess and you know she didn't get out much she did this this and this but when she was out in the country she was allowed to roam free she could look for all those fairies that she had heard in the stories you know and watch all the critters that are out in the forest and just she was just given a lot of freedom her parents had carried around sketchbooks and she took to carrying around a sketchbook that she put together herself so that she could draw these things when she was out in in nature there is an eight-year-old caterpillar picture I'll put it on the Pinterest. I don't think we can link it without special permission on the website. But it, it defies explanation how an eight-year-old was that good at drawing all those different kinds of caterpillars. Mm-hmm. And best of all, guess who was around? Not at school. Bertram. Mm-hmm. So Bertram in the summers, just as much of a nut 
for nature and experimentation as his sister. And I just really don't think kids get this kind of unstructured summer anymore. And if they do, they're probably playing Call of Duty or <laughs> Skate 3. Um, yeah. Borsham got a microscope for a present. They took their nature studies so very seriously to the point that they found a dead fox somewhere. And so they skinned it, get this, and boiled it and re-articulated the skeleton, which means they wired it together as if it were in life, but only a skeleton standing up on a stand. Yeah. And Um, then they anthropomorphized it and thought it looked an awful lot like their aunt. You guys, they were so creative, too. They found an old press in a shed, and they were so happy. Like, no one stopped them. They dragged out this beast, figured out how it worked. There's no internet. They couldn't Google. They figured out how it worked. They discovered they needed ink. Ink, ink. Where do you get ink? So they made some out of soot and lamp oil. I just love these kids. I would have just loved to have just watched them. As a precursor to perhaps getting punished for being messy, they decided, okay, we got to print something for mother. Right. So they printed jam jar labels, but it didn't save them because she totally took the press away. But not before they got out some impressive woodcuts. Um, and knowledge. And knowledge. I mean, holy cow, that's learning a lot. I, uh, I love these kids. I love them so much. They collected and drew everything they could get their hands on, leaves and flowers and bugs and birds, dead and alive. They wrote essays in their cute, adorable little cursive. They researched their topics. They wrote compare and contrast. They asked gardeners about things and, like, you know, like, I'm going to interview the gardener. This is what he said. It's kind of like um, the unschooling phenomenon that's going on in this country, I I imagine, worldwide. And these are the motivated kind of kids that benefit from that Mm -hmm. kind of school. Exactly. Well, she carried on during the school year without Bertram, and I wonder if he was homesick for it or kind of envied her, you know, the leisure time to study bugs under his microscope (laughs) that he wasn't allowed to take to school. And all the stuff that he helped haul back from the country. Okay, Bertram loved owls, and I want a pet owl too, Bertram, but she said that... They're not like the ones in Harry Potter, like the real life ones. (laughs) No, she said that um, he brought back a blue jay and an owl and he tried to be surreptitious about it in two different boxes and they were spitting and swearing she said the owl and the blue jay all the way back (laughs) so perhaps people did know those were in the house the owl actually made it back i don't know what happened to the blue jay but the owl made it back and she has this drawing of the owl sitting there looking at them with a twitching mouse tail sticking out of its head and i'm like oh they were keeping mice as pets to study, you know, as pets. And they could take them out of their cages so they could get, you know, up close and see what was going on and, and get everything right as far as proportion and colors and everything. You know, so an owl and a mouse in the same room is probably not a cool idea. <laughs> or alternatively, if you want to draw the owl eating the mouse, yeah. it's a fabulous idea, <laughs> yeah. but not for the mouse. No, no. Well, Beatrix alone on that third floor had her pets and her, I call it a zoo. It's not even pets. It's just a tiny yeah, zoo. I use menagerie just because it's a fun word, but yeah, it was, it was like a welcome center to a nature preserve. <laughs> she was also reading, you know, The Owl and the Pussycat was published in 1871, so that was a new book. Owls acting like people? That's foreshadowing. Alice in Wonderland? You know, there was a big debate whether she should be allowed to read it or not, but she was. Miss Hammond, who was in charge of her education, um, did really, I mean, she, you couldn't not 
see the talent that Beatrix had. And she told her pa the parents, hey, you need to get her some formal art lessons. You know, and the parents were like, oh, that sounds prestigious. Okay. So they had a woman come in from the South Kensington Museum, which is now the Victoria and Albert Museum, and teach her to draw in... You know that originality that she didn't want to lose by going to school? She was kind of forced to lose it in class, but she's a very obedient child. So the teacher said to draw this way and do this. So she did, and the teacher gave her tests, and she got two certificates over a couple of years in excellence and freehand and modeling and geometry and perspective. But as soon as the teacher was gone, she just went back to the way she used to do it. You know, yes, that's very nice that I have this education but I'm not going to really use it. She did say, you know, she brought a lot of information as to technical aspects, mm -hmm. mixing of paints, brush strokes, etc. But she said when you and your art teacher look at the world in a different way, you're bound to stick. Yeah. yeah so she, polite. And, she, and during this time, she was able to decide that she really wasn't crazy about oil painting, but she loved watercolors. You know, she loved how they worked, and she did a lot of work very early with watercolors. Something else she began about this time that she worked on for years. Her journal. Her journal that she wrote, what, 800 pages of daily life. Like, not the teen angst things you might expect to find in the journal of a modern 15-year-old girl, but more like reported conversations, thorough descriptions of things, what was for dinner. But it was all in code, a code of her own devising, which looks like you should be able to read it. Neat kind of squarey cursive until you look closer. I feel a certain kinship with this. I, and most of my dialect class, spent a year in college writing things in the phonetic alphabet, and once you get used to whatever patterns you use, it's kind of a cool mind stretcher. Um, the reason that we had to learn it is because sounds in English um, sometimes all tied under one letter, like E. It could be E or E. But in the phonetic alphabet, there's only one symbol for one sound. So when you write a word, somebody else that knows the phonetic alphabet can reproduce it, and that's how you can transmit accents, or how you can learn lines phonetically if you don't even speak the language, for example, by using the phonetic alphabet. So that's why I had to learn it. But once you get used to what the symbols you use, you can kind of toss it off really quickly. So that part of her life was very, very familiar to me. Uh-huh. It's really easy once you start. It really is. And it's hard to understand that you could just fluidly write in code. Right. But you really can. Well, it's kind of like uh, we learned shorthand in high school. It's the same thing. It's like just this little symbol is is part of a word. And it, it looks like squiggles. But I, I learned it for a year, and then it's gone. I couldn't. <laughs> I didn't learn shorthand. I don't even think that was offered. Oh, yeah. Shorthand and typing. Or like it was like required classes. I did not have either one. You didn't have typing? Mm mm. Really? Nope. Huh. Was that because I'm I'm older than you. Is is that why? You didn't have type like rooms full of IBM Selectrics and if you looked at your fingers the teacher came and taped a piece of paper over your hands. Nope. So you wouldn't look at your fingers. Actually, during that it was my senior year of high school and we were allowed to type from our imaginations in our heads. We didn't have to copy anything and I flew through it and that is my first memory of getting a high from writing. It was in typing class. What do you and know? That's why I I when I write out longhand it's not as interesting to me. I don't get that as if I'm sitting at a keyboard. 
clacking away. And I am exactly the opposite. She didn't have the typing class. <laughs> Maybe. So anyway, Beatrix's second governess left because I can teach you nothing more. So I read that as you've outstripped my own education, but it could be all these skeletons and bugs are freaking me out, you weirdo. <laughs> So, I've had enough of this. Good yeah. riddance or whatever. It's the third governess, Miss Carter, here only in a cameo, that the world owes a lot to. They had a Jane Austen-like Emma and Mrs. Weston relationship that they were more companions than friends. They were very close in age. Well, at first, you know, at the time, Beatrix was about 16, and Annie, her new governess, was 19. She's only a couple years older than her, but as far as life experiences go, she was... 10 or 20 years ahead of her. She had traveled. She had gone to school. She had lived in Germany. Um, she had a job. You know, she had a sense of adventure and confidence about her that Beatrix just hadn't seen in someone her own age. It's, at first, she pitched a fit, like, I am too old to have a governess. But then they were very good friends. It's her children, this loved companion slash governess, it's her children who will provide the turning point later. Unfortunately, within two years, Annie left to marry Edwin Moore, and Beatrix was alone again. When the governess era is over, what is a nice young lady from a good family to do? Marry someone, mm -hmm. obviously, because there's no other possible path <laughs> for a young woman from this social class that it would be acceptable to mama. Until then, what? Charity? Needlepoint? Art. Obviously art, right? Beatrix haunted that South Kensington Museum in the city and sketched everything she could find in there. I could not simply look. She said, I must capture it, whatever it is. There's a famous incident when she was so delighted and mesmerized by the beauty of light shining upon an object, and she looked down and realized, oh, that's the bucket that we use to feed the pigs. <laughs> but somehow in her eyes, with the light and the color and the shapes, it had just become worthy of capturing. Yeah. So the family's summer habits changed when their usual rental had been sold and was no longer available. And so they began going different places, mostly in the Lake District, which is, if you think of a map of England, it's the far north left side, almost to Scotland. Kind of wild and lush. and There's a mountain and obviously there's lakes, you know, there's forests and there's farmland. One of the more memorable ones is called Ray Castle, and um, the local vicar, whose name was Ronsley, was such a ferocious naturalist that years after he met Miss Potter, he was instrumental in forming the National Trust. But for now, he was so helpful trying to give her something practical to do with her art. Because he was so impressed. Yeah. Like, the way Papa and Mama were 100% not impressed with any dang thing she did in this realm kind of amazes me. Mm -hmm. That a total stranger of rank yeah. saw her work, was impressed, decided to put something into action. Why don't you produce some Christmas cards? And so Bertram and Beatrix worked on them in secret. Because if Papa and Mama got a whiff of commercialism, there would be hell to pay. So Bertram was sent to make the pitch because he's a man and therefore societally acceptable to be in an office, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> he was the salesperson and he was paid six pounds. So the first real money of her own. Living with her parents became increasingly fraught. So it was nice to not be so short of money and not to have to ask for it. Mm -hmm. 
So she did more things and illustrated some little books of poems for a rather bad poet. Selling out, some might say. Some might say selling out. Some might say paying her dues. Um, it likened it to, you know, artists now who do things for, quote, exposure, and mm -hmm. they aren't paid. It was kind of the same thing. So I guess that's been around for a long time. Well, so the years pass. She discovered an interest in fossils and drew them, too, because you know what? Why not? That's, yeah. how, that's her natural reaction to any new aspect of nature. Now we're looking at Beatrix is nearly 30. She's in her upper 20s, and she had a serious purpose at last, a big project of her own that had been simmering in the background for years. Mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what you thought I would say. The local postman up at Ray Castle had got her hooked on the study of fungi. That's lichens, mold, mushrooms, mycology is the official name of the study of fungi. <laughs> Fancy. Half the fun of this, I must say, was simply looking for them in the first place. That's like geocaching. Half oh. the fun of geocaching oh, yeah. is looking for the thing. People would send her mushrooms. So that she could draw them when she was back in London. She learned to drive a cart just so she could roam a field to look for these mushrooms. I think, weirdly, the mushrooms expanded her horizons. She was willing to do, to overcome her shyness, mm -hmm. talking to strange gardeners, <laughs> writing letters to people she didn't know uh -huh. to find out information. That was not in her nature, to be that bold. Right. When she used to draw at the Victoria and Albert Museum, she used to wish, oh, I wish I could ask someone a question about this thing. They're right there. They're right there. But she said they looked fierce, and so she didn't feel like she could ask them the question. Oh, how far we've come. Yeah. She did hundreds of hundreds of sketches and paintings of different mushrooms, microscopically. I mean, cross-checked species, dug into old books. She not only drew them, she did lots of experiments on them. Um, propagation of spores, for example. How do they reproduce? Scientific things that aren't just lovely pictures in a book. In fact, she did some preliminary work on penicillin, which is a mold. And that interest in penicillin didn't come to fruition until like 50 years later. Mm -hmm. No, she didn't pursue it. No, she didn't come no. up with breakthroughs, but she had ideas about, oh, now I wonder if molds would be helpful. They're gross. Yes, people don't like them. They ruin things. It's the cleaning bucket again. She yes. saw the beauty in something that the rest of us would not look at or look at ugly. Ugh. Scientific amateurs were popping up all over Victorian society. It's kind of the first time that a whole class of people had so much leisure time plus so much education. It was like mm -hmm. a very glorious time for especially the natural sciences. Sure. Well, now these amateur scientists and, in fact, almost all the professional ones, too, were men, of course. And Beatrix showed her work to her uncle, who was a scientist himself, Sir Henry Roscoe. He'd been actually knighted for his work in chemistry. So let's present this to the directors of Kew Gardens. That's where the official botanists are, right. after all. And right. Who were all not only not impressed... They were sort of offended that some amateur dared encroach on their territory. And the fact that she was a young woman, I mean, about blew the tops of their heads off with how dare she. They wrote a letter back to her uncle, a rejection letter, I'm assuming, that was so rude that the uncle would never let her see it. Mm. And then all, all she said, this is Victorian restraint in its finest. She said, 
he expressed animosity toward the directors of Kew Gardens. <laughs> oh, did he? Animosity. That's, we call it cussing, but whatever. <laughs> so the scientific parts of her presentation, that uncle was determined to seek at glory. And so she wrote a paper that was she wanted to present, but she couldn't because women weren't allowed. Very much like, you know, in it last Lillian Gilbreth, we're into the, you know, the next century. Still women weren't allowed into the engineering departments. She wasn't allowed, so someone else presented the paper for her. With the charming, glittering name of On the Germination of Species of Agrisane. I don't know how to say the <laughs> Latin name of mushrooms. I'm, I'm sure there was you a- did that because I... I was like, I saw it and I was starting to write it down and I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> Agoricenie. Agoricenie. I'm going with that. Okay. <laughs> Say it with confidence. <laughs> so that paper, although most of the assertions in it were proven to be accurate and true, received a golf clap. <laughs> and nothing. And, and pretty much nothing. So obviously fungi we're not going to be the answer. What was the answer to how I'm going to spend my life? What do I do? Beatrix's health was in a poor state. She was nervous and sleepless and headachy. Her mother would hardly let her stir out from the house alone, quote, due to her frailty. Can we not all see from here that it was likely boredom and frustration? Ugh, she loved such this restricted, narrow cage of acceptable behavior. Her parents were providing for her clothes and food, but they controlled her. They controlled her movements and every aspect. Oh, Mama held that dang carriage over her head like, no, you can't borrow the car. What if I need it? I mean, she manipulated her. (laughs) She would never say, Mama, if she was needing the carriage in the morning. So Beatrix couldn't have it in the morning. Well, I don't know if I'm going to need it. And then finally Mama would go right in the middle of when Beatrix had an opportunity to take it. Mama would change her mind and take it. Uh, it just killed me. It's like, don't you have 9,000 ducats? Just buy another dang carriage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's going to be this contentious of a thing. They wanted to control where she went. And she let them. I know. I mean, I know. And it was societal, though. You know, that's what you, it was what happened. Now, there's a scene in the movie starring Renee Zellweger that I actually felt like expressed this. She kind of broke free at one point and asked the coachman to drive quickly through the garden. And the mere fact that the carriage was going, I mean, what, Uh 18 miles an hour through the park and she, a woman, was sticking her head a little bit out the window to let the wind blow in her face seemed to make all the extras that had been cast in this scene turn around and stare at her in horror. So if that is, in fact, what we're dealing with, I hate to think. It wasn't even like her sticking her hand out making her hand fly. (laughs) And she wasn't letting the hair fly free and screaming. No. Undergarments weren't coming out of those windows. She wasn't popping out of the top of the carriage. So whatever. But if she could get used to the carriage, she loved to head out to Wandsworth, miles away to the busy house of her former companion slash governess, Annie Moore, who eventually had eight children. Ah! I know. But at this point, there were only four or five, and Miss Potter would bring her little white mice in their cages and let them run everywhere. I have to tell you, the little poo trail that mice always leave behind them, they just wantonly poo. Yeah. I just hate to think about that. Okay, but on the flip side, mice poo is, like, hard. I mean... Yes. And you're not going to mistake it at this time for a chocolate sprinkle. 
<laughs> well, anyway, I'm not even that fastidious or germ-phobic, and I'm like, two little mice in a room for 30 minutes could really make quite a bit of sweeping for me. But whatever. Um, so she used to love to tell these children stories. And my son says I have a gift for what he calls stories out of my head. Mm-hmm. Although, honestly, lately he's been really interested in Becoming inserted into the world of Harry Potter himself oh, okay. as an American student. Well, he would have gotten his letter this year, right? Uh, actually, he would get his letter in about three weeks. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to do the fake letter because I think that's horrible for someone and that like <laughs> has this vague thought in the back of his mind that mm, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do. Can that I get letter. some points? Oh yes, <laughs> officially 100 points for Susan. Thank you. <laughs> what house are you again? Hufflepuff. Oh, well, 100 points for Hufflepuff. You are what makes the world go round. When Beatrix got home, she loved to write picture letters back to especially the eldest boy. My favorite one that she wrote to him is, I can't even remember what the letter said, but she she writes the words and then she basically says, and we had a boat. The words kind of look like water going and then there's a line drawing that kind of integrates with the words of someone in a boat. And it's Uh a very minimal amount of lines, but she gets her point across and you can just see the boat. Yeah. She actually had said later on that she didn't, you know, she wrote them for the kids, but she wrote them also for herself because she liked it. It was that, it's that writer's high I was talking about before. But it's a letter that she wrote to Noel to cheer him up when he was sick that proved to be a turning point for her. Maybe the beginning of it sounds familiar. I shall tell you a story about four little rabbits whose names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. Well, that's Peter Rabbit, of course. Though it would be four more years, years, before Beatrice thought to do anything with this letter. Right. I'm glad Noel saved it. Noel or Annie. So what on earth was she doing all this time? You know, there's the same old and there's the same old. Painting and going from place to place as the dutiful spinster daughter nursing her parents who were increasingly fractious and demanding. In fact, once when Papa was sick, she wrote to not one of her child friends, one of her grown-up friends, one of her cousins. I know I should feel like an angel for doing this, but I have to confess to crying when I got home because Papa was being deplorable. And she also wrote to the same cousin, it's hard to pass company with persons who were always on the lookout for matters of complaint. So true. Bertram, bachelor, man, with the power to just leave, had pretty well peace outed as soon as he could. He moved far away. Do you blame him? But that sort of escape just seemed impossible for an unmarried daughter. Just the oppression. I just can't believe it. And now Bertram's gone. Once upon a time, her father's friend, John Everett Millay, had complimented her on her highly developed sense of observation. He also insulted her nose. (laughs) But we can't have everything. And it seems like during this period, she was storing up scraps of inspiration for later use. There was a real Peter Rabbit, her pet, Peter, who had this virtue of just sitting still, which seems like a useful trait in a rabbit. Maybe there was an owl in the room and he was freezing and it wasn't, so I don't know. Um, There was a real Hunkamunka. That'll come up later. There was a real Mrs. Tiggywinks, the hedgehog. A gardener during this period told her a story of a tricky fox that would save some of his porridge and then leave some in his dish and then act like he was dead. And you think, why would, what on earth would he do that for? But yeah. then the chickens would come along. They'd freak out like, there's a fox, but, oh wait, he's dead. Oh, that smells delicious. I think I'm going to go over there and get some of that porridge. Mr. Trickster would have his KFC chicken dinner. <laughs> 
Paul looking good. There was a real story of some assistants of a tailor who sneaked in and finished their master's work, which later became the Tailor of Gloucester, a pretty famous work. And always, always, the landscapes and gardens of the places they visited, one in particular made a very big impression. Not necessarily the grand house they rented, because, you know, status is everything. You have to rent these giant country estates. (laughs) Even if you only need a couple rooms. I know. Yeah. It used to be called Lakefield, but then it kind of reverted to its country name, Eastwike. Eastwike. So I'm assuming that means Lakefield. Because Everybody it's, say it because it's really fun to say. Eastwike. East it's still a country house hotel. You could stay there. You could stay at yeah. Eastwike. But the village of Sari nearby, the cottage gardens, the stone houses, the friendly lifestyle, the little shop, the fields full of sheep. Beatrix, that first summer, became known to Everyone, and I think there is a funny story. She dropped in to see the servants. She was talking to some gardeners, and they invited mm-hmm. her in for tea at a grand house, not the one she was visiting. Do you know the story? Yeah, no. Uh, they invited her in for tea, and she went into the servants' hall, which was a little bit like, ooh. They weren't sure the propriety of this. Well, think about when Rose went down into the kitchen when she first got to Downton Abbey. So here she is, and so they decided as a compromise they were going to make her a separate table. She went there with a maid. The maid ate with everyone else at the big table, but they made her a separate table, and they used, quote, the state china to give Beatrix Potter her tea, and everyone else ate out of the utilitarian pottery mugs. You guys are cracking me up. Even a little drop-in needs a little bit of pretense there. Yeah. But I think her joy in this place really attracted people to her, especially the children. She was practically a pied piper to those kids. She would capture whole audiences of them with her little stories and showing them a bug or a bird or a mushroom or, you know, always willing to just sit down and have people sit in her lap and tell a little story. Kind of like L. Frank Baum. But he did the same thing, you know. That's your test audience. But something began to stir inside of her mind. Could she, maybe, turn her stories into a book? She decided she was going to borrow her Peter Rabbit picture letter back from her little correspondent, Noel Moore, and things began to take shape. This is a good place to take a break, and when we come back, we'll see what happens with her little book. The History Chicks is sponsored by Audible.com, the premier source for audiobooks and courses with over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. Don't miss out on a free audiobook. When you sign up for a free trial of their service, they'll let you have a download of your choice, anything you want. You can get Beatrix Potter, The Complete Tales, that's nearly six hours of stories. Or how about Scarlet Feather by Maeve Binchy? It's the story of a year in the life of two Irish friends who opened up a new catering company. To receive your free audiobook today, simply follow the Audible link on the sidebar of our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we're back. There's been a germ of an idea. Or maybe a little spore of one. Whoa, bring it the mushrooms on back. That's right. Beatrix worked hard on her little manuscript. Her old friend, Canon Ronsley, remember the man who got her that Christmas card gig so long ago? He knew some publishing house addresses from his bad poetry. Most poetry is very bad. A sentiment I share with Jane Austen's Elizabeth Bennet. Second mention of Jane Austen. (laughs) Well, never mind that. I can't read a lot of it, but I, I do appreciate some. But yeah, there's a lot of bad out there. Definitely. Anyway, well, one by one... 
publishers were approached. And there was just not one spark of interest. She might have just as well thrown it down the coal bin hole. And then, for some reason, fate, the universe, Papa inexplicably gave her some shares, some stock, that he was irritated by. It hadn't paid interest in so long, you know. He's Here's cleaning this. out a drawer. Kind He's of. like, here, honey, go play with this. <laughs> and so she decided, she was thinking, huh, I'm not going to save this. I'm going to go liquidate this, and I'm going to self-publish my book. Because she believed in it, as she, every good author should. She went down to whatever place one goes to liquidate stock and lost almost all the value of the stocks. And she didn't care. She thought, you know what? Since this was a present and I already had zero, anything I get is so much more money. Yeah. So I don't care. And they, the guys were completely astonished yeah. at her and gave her the equivalent of about $13,000 today. Yeah. Which is, you know, not so bad. It was enough for her to publish 250 copies of her little book. Uh, she gave them away to her friends, and she got them into bookstores, and they sold out. It was this little book, just about five by four inches, with an illustration every time you turned the page. It was just like this little greeny gray book with four little rabbits and a line drawing on the front. And of all the drawings, there was one in color at the very beginning. It's called the frontispiece. The frontist. <laughs> frontist or frontist? Frontist piece. Frontist. Yes. Um, it was Mother Rabbit giving Peter his spoonful of chamomile tea to settle his little stomach after his binge. <laughs> So the book, kind of critically acclaimed, it made its way to Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, who read it to his children and liked it very, very much and recommended it. And all this time, behind the scenes, Canon Ronsley had sort of been badgering this one publishing house, Frederick Warren and Company, because they're the only ones who'd sent a polite rejection letter for them. But since it's in... A form now that looks like a real book. This looks professional. He went ahead. Canon Ronsley sent them one of these little books. How about now? How about now? Look look how good it looks. And they became kind of intrigued. And they said they would take it on. Dun, dun, dun. Now, Frederick Warren and Company, this publishing company, was a family business. Frederick was the father, and at this point it was run by his three sons. Harold Fruing, which is a name that should not come back. It was probably their mother's maiden name. <laughs> Fruing, not so much. And the youngest, Norman. The elder brothers sent the kid, Norman, on the case to handle Miss Potter because she did not want color illustrations. They wanted color illustrations. She said, the book is going to be too expensive. I want it to get into as many children as possible, and you're going to price it out of their hands. So Norman got on the case, and he charmed her, and he worked with her, and he compromised with her, and she finally agreed. I almost wonder if they kind of, not fobbed off, but they kind of gave him this assignment and thought maybe it didn't matter if it succeeded or not. And I almost think his fresh eyes and his Eagerness to prove himself mm -hmm. and his inexperience kind of went a long way, I yeah. think, because he had a little experience in the publishing world, but I think the fact that he wasn't jaded by it yet mm -hmm. really benefited Beatrix Potter a and lot. And that she had enough business sense to be able to talk with him, you know, and he was showing an interest because this was his only project. You know, she did have to write, though, anxiously, when it came time to sign a contract. She had to write in that even though she was 36, 
her papa might insist on being difficult about the contract and coming to their office with her. And if he did that, please pay him no mind. This is not very respectful of me to say, but he's often very difficult to deal with. I'm old enough to make these decisions, but he may come with me. That is the original helicopter parents. Oh, no kidding. Later, she, when they knew she was going into the to work at the publishing house, because Beatrix wanted to get involved in everything. She picked the font, the paper that it was printed on, the binding, the, the colors. She wanted to make sure that they were all right. And in a lot of those meetings, she had to have a chaperone. 36 years old, and she needed a chaperone. But that's just the, the way it was. Beatrix had written a story with illustrations for a different young Moor, Noel's little sister Frida, about a tailor who was surprised to be helped out of some trouble by a group of mice that sewed. And she's working on her second book while the first one's getting published. Well, but she thought it was presumptuous of her to submit another book. That's imposter syndrome at its finest. Oh, totally. And even the first time, she told Norman, I hope this little book will be a success. There seems to be a great deal of trouble being taken with it. It's like, oh, I don't know. Am I taking up too much of your time? So when she had the second book, she's like, oh, I don't want to bother the men again. Let me do what I did the last time. So she self-published again. She didn't realize. She just didn't realize how valuable her first property was. So her self-published book, The Tailor of Gloucester, also sold well, but skyrocketed in popularity once Warrens and Company had taken it over. Remember, this book was based on a story of a real tailor. who It wasn't mice, obviously. It was his <laughs> human assistant. John Samuel Pritchard was his name, and when he died in 1934, this is how popular The Tailor of Gloucester had become, mm-hmm. when the original tailor died in 1934 his gravestone literally reads the tailor of gloucester love that so that is a successful book yeah no kidding i mean what a claim to fame i'm him i have to tell you something funny though the publishers when they got a hold of it ripped out a picture of the mice celebrating there's Uh a whole bunch of mice drinking out of a bottle and the publisher pulled it out no that's that's going to offend a lot of people and she's like really mice drinking out of a bottle (laughs) <laughs> it went fine with their, my original book, but they insisted they would not publish it with that picture, so she had to take it out. And yeah. Beatrix always said this book, Taylor of Gloucester, was her favorite. People argue that she cannot draw humans for squat, but I will tell you she does it better than 99.9% of us. I can't barely draw a stick figure. Oh, I, there's no way. My art is really bad. Peter Rabbit was, of course, a big hit. The first run was 8,000 copies, sold out. Within a year, there was 20,000 copies in print, and a fifth edition was made in 18 months. So within 18 months, they're on a fifth edition, and there's over 50,000 of these little books out on the market. And then Taylor Bluster comes out, right? You know, within that same time period. I sense a hole in the market. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, they like them. They really like them. (laughs) The letters she got at the beginning from her publishers were so very formal. Dear Madam, respectfully yours, etc. (laughs) But now the correspondence had lightened up between Norman Warren and Beatrix, two painfully shy people. In a repressed age, they were slowly becoming friends. The third book, The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin, also had started out as a letter, mm-hmm. came out in 1903. And she started getting fan mail from children, which she just loved. She called her readers her little friends. 
And what her little friends wanted was a sequel to Peter Rabbit. <laughs> we want a sequel. Of we course. want a sequel. The money literally began coming in. There's the thrill of, you know, artistic achievement and everything, but there's something about financial independence. Mm -hmm. Her parents were being horrible about, quote, all those letters, the children's letters, uh -huh. too. Yeah. Yeah. Like dirty letters full of scarlet fever that came to the house. <laughs> Whatever. And going to that dirty office and unseemly blah, 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 blah. She wrote to Norman Warren, I have such painful unpleasantness at home about my work. Everyone freaking loves you mm -hmm. in the world. Right. And the people who should most congratulate her are these bozos yeah. about it. Yeah. Beatrix was very modern in that she was she had some instinct that merchandising would be a little aspect to her characters that could make some money. Mm -hmm. There were copies of her Peter Rabbits appearing in Fortnum's that she had not authorized. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah. I know it's horrible. It's horrible to think about that, isn't it? What would she have done with you, Henry? <laughs> He just said, articulate my skeleton. <laughs> that surprised me, too, is, like, for as much as she loved all these animals, she really had no qualms about euthanizing them, you know, and stuffing them and studying them. <laughs> just, okay, it's part of the circle of life, I guess. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? I know, I know. So back to merchandising after Henry's interruption. She decided she owned the copyright and the trademark on these things that she was going to start producing them. Obviously, she's not producing them, licensing them, I mm -hmm. should say. Stuffed animals, china, wallpaper, figurines, puzzles, games, bedding, clothing. Even now, very recently, Pottery Barn Kids mm -hmm. had Beatrix Potter china. Oh, yeah. My kids had those little baby bowls oh. with Beatrix Potter baby bowls. Yeah, with little baby spoons. It was so cute. Well, I looked on <laughs> replacements.com to see, like, well, how much is this stuff worth? Yeah. And um, a Benjamin Bunny smoking a pipe is 350 bones. Wow. On a plate? Nope. Just a little figurine. Oh, a figurine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Start scouring those flea markets. Beatrix decided to buy herself a present. Not jewels or clothes or a pony, but a piece of land in Sari Village where her heart is. I love that she has such a businessy sense about her because someone in her position could just be going, oh, I've got money, let's go buy some more dresses or whatever. But she's like, I need some land. I want my own piece of this world. So speaking of hearts, her publisher, Norman Warren, had really become her friend. They had so much in common. They were both shy. They were both so good-natured and self-effacing and creative and very good with children. They wrote each other nearly every day, which made Mama object. Beatrix <laughs> is a grown woman, Mama. Hmm. Ha, yeah. She really wasn't crazy about Norman because <laughs> he was what she was you know he's the son of a self-made man although he's still working in the trades and the family worked in the trades that's just not our type dear you know that was a big bone of contention with with mom so we're working on benjamin bunny the long-awaited sequel to peter rabbit as requested little friends as requested it was so nice for her to have someone so interested in her work and he always had the right solution or a suggestion of something she could try. And it was very nice to have a collaborator. Mm -hmm. And he was not afraid of being a critic, too. Right. You know, when there was a nursery rhyme that was out of place, he'd be like, bitch, 
the picture of the drinking mice. No. Yeah. <laughs> he was not shy about telling me. But well, they he, were working together. Yeah, it was you a know, collaboration. And that's how good collaborations work. I mean, you tell me when I screw up all the time. <laughs> and, well, you never do, so I <laughs> know, oh, whatever. <laughs> but it was getting personal. She'd been welcomed over to the family home on several occasions, perfectly proper, as he lived with his jolly mother and his sister, Amelia, Millie, and his brother's kids were always coming over to get treats from that indulgent cook over there and toys from who they called Johnny Crow. That's who they called their uncle because he uh-huh. could build a lot of stuff. He had this whole basement workshop where he bodged around making presents for everybody. Who wouldn't like an uncle like that? Yeah. It's kind of like having an aunt in name who writes you children's stories with illustrations. <laughs> it really is. Well, Beatrix was just amazed at this four-foot-tall dollhouse that was down in that basement workshop that had three floors and a tower and curtains in all the windows. It was the best one he'd ever made, he thought. Like, look, observe the coolness. She agreed. Oh, he's so cute. They're so nerdy and freaking cute. A thought had taken hold of her. The Warren's cook had given Beatrix a treat herself in the form of two mice, which <laughs> others might not consider a treat. But how funny that the cook knew she'd like the yeah, mice. She's like collects these rodents that she'd normally, you know, dispose of. Well, she promptly named these mice Hunkamunka and Tom Thumb after characters in this book called Tom Thumb the Great by Henry Fielding. Every time I hear Hunkamunka, I think Elvis. Oh, Hunkamunka burning love. Hunkamunka burning love. What would Beatrix thought of rock and roll, the way he moved his hips? Mom would have passed out. Yeah, Mom, yeah. <laughs> she would have fallen down the stairs. Yeah. So Beatrix got an idea and wanted to come back and sketch this dollhouse. But alas, it had been delivered already to his niece, Winifred. But of course, she was absolutely welcome by the whole family. Mm-hmm. To come out to Surbiton and draw it. In fact, Winifred's mother was kind of excited that a famous author was going to be coming to her house. <laughs> you know, but Mama Potter laid down the law. Number one, Beatrix would not go without her. Number two, no way was she going to the suburbs. Where, number three, there would be an association with tradesmen. Um, Mrs. Thing, your cotton dollars are less than a 100 years old, but whatever. So get this touching thing. This book became quite the collaboration. Norman went out to the suburbs (laughs) to have the house photographed for her so she could draw it inside and out. And Beatrix had had an idea that her two mice would invade the dollhouse and be mad that all the food was fake and wreck up the place. And so he bought and sent her, I mean, kind of unsolicited, fake miniature food from London. Tiny furniture, two dolls named Lucinda and Jane. (laughs) And she wrote back, I don't know if I'll be able to fit all these in the book. You're sending me so many delightful treasures. <laughs> this one, The Tale of Two Bad Mice, is my personal favorite. Oh. And it, it can't, she is cranking out these books pretty quickly. I mean, she had, she had a huge treasure chest of letters to go from, so she'd already thought about the stories they were already plotted out. But Benjamin Bunny and The Tale of Two Bad Mice were published, like, the same year. And this is, we're talking within three years of Peter Rabbit. It's like, Wow. I'm sorry to say that Beatrix let the real Hunkamunka play on the chandelier, which is questionable, and Hunkamunka fell and died. Beatrix wrote, I'd rather my own neck had broken. She felt very bad about that. Yeah. So unlike all the rest of the pets, she's just like, put the ether on them. Blah, blah, blah. She felt really responsible for Hunkamunka. And I wonder if it's because this book 
was so associated with Norman oh. and their work together that she was kind of the living symbol, and then she messed it up. You're talking with your hands, and you're, like, making a little heart. I am. <laughs> love. But this close collaboration with Norman had been so successful, both professionally and personally, that they immediately began on a next one based on this old laundry woman that had been in service at one of the Potter's summer rentals. And simultaneously, Beatrix's pet hedgehog. They are so cute. Where do hedgehogs live, like, in the wild? In bushes, I think. Hedgehog. Oh. I don't know. Like, in North America. Do they live in North America? Well, where do dogs in America get porcupine quills in their noses? I'd say porcupines are our hedgehogs. But hedgehogs are cute and soft, and you can hold them without bleeding. <laughs> Things got to be more defensive in the new world, man. <laughs> so we have no idea where the indigenous hedgehogs of North America live. I don't know or if we have hedgehogs. We just have porcupines. Okay, where are we? <laughs> okay. In July 1905, now her first book was published in 1902. We're not that far in, but they've had a three-year relationship. Norman proposes. By letter. Yeah, by letter. That's very, you know, sweet because she'll have it. She'll have a souvenir of the proposal. Mm. There's no, you know, cameras to catch it. Um, she accepted but Ma and Pa lost their crap. I know. She she happily wore her engagement ring in that sulky hellhole that Bolton Gardens had become. Can, <laughs> you, can we not? I mean, can we not? She is nearly 40 years old. Right. Surely we can let her have her happiness. Surely. I have to tell you, at least his side of the family was so happy and so generous. Everyone was just delighted. Norman's sister began to refer to Beatrix as my sister. All the nieces and nephews now called her Auntie B. How cute. Yeah. Beatrix was on the threshold of having a large, welcoming family. That's a first. A partner who understood her, work success. Other than her parents' unreasonable contempt for the whole thing, her life was looking so good at last. It was the life that she could never see herself in. Suddenly, she was there. This is true happiness for her. When suddenly, Norman got very sick, very sick indeed. He was diagnosed with advanced leukemia and died. Within one month of their engagement. Beatrice fell apart, but quietly and alone. So much restraint in days gone by. So much restraint. <sighs> I, I, the way I, I see, like, colors, you know, like, she was, like, rainbowy future for her and now suddenly there's a cloud you know she's back having to spinster lifestyle she's gonna have to take care of her parents and their old age that's her future mrs tiggy winkle the real one the real hedgehog died not long afterward too it was like the end like all of it's gone like that era is mm -hmm. gone but she did wear his ring that engagement ring on her right hand for the rest of her life Chapter 2, I guess, begins now with a slight overlap to Chapter 1. One of the servants up at the summer house, Eastwike, had alerted her. See, you got to keep your informants. <laughs> One of the servants informed her that a farm outside Sari Village was for sale. Hilltop Farm, her favorite. She knew the tenants. She'd entertained their children, in fact. And she snapped it right up. Wait until you see the pictures on our Pinterest page. It is my dream existence. It, oh, it's Gorgeous. When she purchased it, it was a 34-acre working farm. Of course, Mama and Papa would not dream of her living there. Gone are the days when 40-year-olds obey against their better judgment, right? Yeah. So she kept to the current tenant farmer, 
Um, who had been a good tenant? I mean, there's nothing wrong with, mm-hmm. you know, him. So you guys stay. Keep on keeping on. Much to their relief, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. And she just supervised renovations from afar. Having been through a renovation, Beatrix, from afar is way better. She built onto the house um, living quarters for the the, the family. The tenant farmer. The tenant, and his yeah. Family. And she was going to live in the main house, Hilltop, the original house. And Beatrix finished the last book that Norman had been a part of, The Pie and the Patty Pan, about a tea party gone wrong that was really set in Surrey Village. Imagine if someone used your house in a famous movie. That's how the villagers felt about this book. Mm-hmm. Every page was like, oh, I know where that is. Oh, I know where that yeah. is. Hey, that's the store. That's my house. That's Hilltop. That's, you know. Yeah, it was- when you film a movie in your neighborhood. Though it's interesting and maybe unconscious that the main character's family... She's a cat, this main character. Uh Strongly object to her friendship with her guest, who is a dog. (laughs) Metaphor? Maybe. The books rolled on. The tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher about a fisherman frog. The tale of Tom Kitten, remarkable to me, mainly because Norman's brother, Frewing, who had taken over her work, objected that all the kitten's clothes came off. (laughs) And she reminded him that kittens don't come with clothes, usually. And, by the way, she'd already drawn him. That's right. The end. That's right. They're naked kittens. They usually walk around perfectly <laughs> nude, right? Yeah, but all, her, all of her animals are have been wearing clothes. Yeah. You know, she just did this really great um, blend of animal and human. You know, because of her technical drawing background, they looked precisely like the actual animal, but they had just enough you know, human to them that we could relate to them. And she said, and I haven't looked through to verify this, but she did write that she just hates trousers and hardly ever paints them. So I guess we'll have to go see if anybody has trousers on, but she just hates them. Jemima Puddle Duck was a retelling of Red Riding Hood, as far as I'm concerned, with a clever fox instead of a wolf and an absent-minded duck instead of Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. And then there was this dark chapter. There was one where there was a cat baked in a pie and almost got eaten and killed called the Roly-Poly Pudding. I don't know. Two books a year for a while anyway. Mm-hmm. We won't go into all of them because, you know. Yeah, I'm impressed. You wrote down a whole lot more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, simultaneously to the book fair, she was becoming a real country woman. Beatrix would now come by herself for days or even weeks. Fan yourself, an unmarried woman. <laughs> and she not only worked her farm and helped to renovate things and, and modernize things as much as possible and clean things up, but she's, like, starting to breed sheep. What is her mom thinking at this point? She described herself as a self-contained, independent female farmer. So she fit in her stories uh-huh. among lambing and potatoes uh-huh. and gardening and her parents still kicking and still expecting her to go on all their trips with them. Though I think she was upwards of 30 before those people ever even trusted her to get a hold of the luggage at the end. (laughs) Beatrix bought an adjoining farm, Castle Farm, and the solicitor who handled the sale was this tall, quiet country gentleman named Mr. William Helis. So he was a, a restful friend while she was there and a really good, thorough correspondent when she was away. He really kind of helped her oversee getting that farm into shape. Um, she wanted to expand into cows. That's why she bought this farm, the second farm. Well, and by the time she was 46, she had some award-winning blue-ribbon pigs. 
I'm sitting here all excited because this is such a, I love this story. This is, this may be one of, no, 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 not this particular story. Beatrix Pot. Oh, oh, oh. This is what I mean. Okay, go on. <laughs> she would take off with her baskets and just, I'm going to spot an overgrown whatever. Uh-huh. And it's mindsies now. Okay. And she would take it and transplant it. Propagation, sort of. She literally <laughs> said, stolen plants grow better. I think girl knew, yeah, she knew what she, what was, she doing. was doing. But she, she got away with it. Well, she's local gentry. You I can't know. drink out of a pottery mug. So. <laughs> so things, a couple of these larcenous gardening seasons later, had become serious with Mr. Helis, who was, after all, a product of the place and the way of life that she loved best mm-hmm. in all the world. And her parents, again, put their foot down. A country solicitor, indeed. That acrimony was just crazy <laughs> at this point. She's 46 years old. That part blows my mind. Her parents probably shouldn't have been focusing so much on Beatrix and looking a little bit more towards Bertram because in the past few years, while he did get a little closer to the bottle than he did to any members of his family, he had secretly eloped with a wine merchant's daughter. They were married for 11 years, and he kept up this double life. His family didn't know about it. He would go to London when he had to, pop in at vacation, everything's going great, and then go back to his wife where he he was a farmer. I think, honestly, I think he did the right thing because guess who he's protecting from all that mess? His wife, who he loved. Now, he died very early in his life, Mm -hmm. but I do believe they had a happy marriage. Oh, yeah, very happily married. I wrote that down. Life as a farmer and a landscape painter. Hmm. Yeah. So there was begrudging approval then. Um, thanks. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, like, well, this... I guess if your brother did that. All right, go ahead. <laughs> well, and Beatrix and William Healers were married in the same month as her last major work. I guess I have to say her last major British work. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tale of Pigling Bland. She was 47 and he was 42. You know what struck me about this book? Which is something that people might not remember, but for some reason this instantly struck me. When Pigling Bland went off somewhere, his mother packed him a little package of, quote, conversation peppermints. Mm -hmm. And there is a book, Laura Ingalls Wilder book, where they're at some kind of little Wild West store, a general store, and the man gives Laura and Mary conversation peppermints. And I don't remember what Mary said. It was a lovely poem, Mm -hmm. and Laura's just said sweets for the sweet, and she felt like she got a raw deal. (laughs) Do you remember that part of the... No, you. I read them just the one time, but you read those were your favorite books as a child. So you have the details embedded in your brain. I just thought, well, no, wait. Where have I heard of conversation peppermints uh-huh. before? And that's where. Yeah. That was amazing to me. <laughs> um, they don't. There's no surviving photographs. I don't even know if there was any taken of the actual wedding day. But the day before, they had gotten together in the garden, and this is she, this is so Beatrix Potter. In their wedding portrait, the bride is wearing a tweed suit made out of herdwick wool. Those are the kind of sheep that she was raising. Well, they're in the country. Yeah, that's where tweeds are worn. That's right. It was so her. <laughs> There were other books after this, mostly, but not all, recycled drawings that she already kind of had. Her creative spark in this direction was really dimming. William Helis didn't really know a whole lot about her past, a whole lot about that work. She never really talked about it to him. She didn't keep it a secret. No. But she didn't go on about it either. And they lived They lived at Castle Cottage, and the original, her original hilltop was kind of like her playhouse, you know. 
was where she did her work, so he wouldn't see it. You know, it's not where he's living. Her eyesight was going a little for close work, anyway. The money was still good, and it was paying for her new obsessions, farming and chickens and pigs and sheep, and working through the Mrs. Beaton's cookbook, <laughs> which I was so tickled by. She was determined because she didn't really know how to make too much. And they had this whole argument one morning about, do you put bacon in a cold pan or do you put bacon in a hot pan? And they just really never agreed on that. So super cute. The, it is. The cold even, pan. Uh, Mrs. Beaton <laughs> says cold pan, but Mr. Helis he said he wanted blue smoke coming off the iron pan before his bacon went in. Thank you very much. So that was kind of cute. It almost goes, doesn't it? Like Julie and Julia, uh-huh. Beatrix and Beaton. Oh. I don't think she worked through the whole thing. Anyway, that's a book where the woman advocates boiling pasta for 90 minutes, so I would stay out of most of that recipe section. <laughs> what is it then? Like, so gummy. Ugh. I don't know. Maybe I'll try it and let you know. Okay. And uh, quite frankly, I think we should get points for not making any comments about British cooking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a show you should watch. There's I, a show everybody should everybody watch. Everybody should be watching it. It is about a family who eats the way British people ate in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And it follows the journey of British cooking. And for the first whole two decades... <laughs> People are saying, I wish it had a little flavor to it. The only spices are salt and pepper. And so that kind of goes along with the stereotype of British cooking being filling, but not that exciting. Back in time for dinner. Back in time for dinner. Oh, you should watch it. It's all available on YouTube. Yes, I agree. So her farm and her garden occupied most of her time. The First World War brought some challenges in that many young men enlisted to fight. These aren't drafted. They were so happy to go. We've all seen that Mr. Selfridge episode where everybody couldn't wait. And they all want to go fight. They all wanted to go fight. Well, the women left to run things mostly went into the cleaner jobs, you know, shops, being the milkman the mailman, etc. Even though the Women's National Land Army tried to make farm work attractive, it was pretty vital, I would say, more than shop work. Well, Beatrix bypassed the mailman and hired this Miss Eleanor choice to help her run the farm for a while. It was just a constant struggle, not to mention that money owed her from book sales and merchandise was not being paid promptly. And somehow the publisher, Fruin, her contact, they were avoiding her letters. They were kind of bobbing her off. Well, we'll send you the account when we can. She graciously, I say graciously, suspended their responsibility for paying her during the war. Mm-hmm. But she still wanted those accounts. What was owed her? What was sold? Etc. But what was really happening there was Harold was doing some very questionably ethical money management. He was arrested in 1917 for forgery. He had been stealing money from the publishing business to pay debtors from a fishing business that he owned on his own, and it all came toppling down on him. And not only was he imprisoned, but Frederick Warren, the company, was in financial ruin, and Furring was left holding the bag. Oh, and he, oh, he sent her, I mean, this is their biggest client here. He sent her a plea, please, oh, please, can you come up with anything to dig us out of this hole? And just at a time, when Beatrix Potter was easing out of her artistic endeavors, she was pulled back in to put some more books together to save the company. And she did, though she did take the step of hiring herself over there to London, down there from where she was, <laughs> to London 
to get a hold of her original drawings, which were no longer deemed safe because are they going to be sold with all the rest of your stuff? No, uh-uh, yeah. mm-hmm. they, these are mine. Here's how she really feels about these books at this point. And I'm going to bleep out the one word that I'm going to say because there's no other reason this should be an explicit podcast. But she wrote it down, so I'm going to read it. So she wrote it down. Let's just absorb that for a second. You don't suppose I shall be able to continue these little books when I'm dead and buried. I'm utterly tired of doing them, and my eyes are wearing out. I will try to do you one or two more for the good of the old firm, but it is quite time I had rest from them, especially as there is still other work that I should like to finish for my own pleasure. Tart. Yeah, very much so, but also very loyal. I mean, she she was friends with the family. You know, she, her and Millie were still very good friends. So she kind of cobbled together from old other works um, a book called Apley Dapley's Nursery Rhymes, which actually did very well. Can I say half without it being explicit? I mean, it was kind of half Alec. Half, okay. It was kind of half Alec together, um, but it worked, and she put together a Peter Rabbit painting book. So minimal effort on her part, but good financial reward. And within two years, um, Warren was able to reorganize the company and, and get solvent again. So back to the country where Beatrix really wants to be instead of messing with people in receivership and all this kind of thing. So let me list some of her interests and accomplishments just really quick. She was a big supporter of the Girl Guides. I guess they're the Girl Scouts here. Right. Right. Though Beatrix was getting pretty grumpy in person in general, uh, she was so intrigued. She loved them so much. And she often said she wished they had been around when she was a girl. She would have... She would have been so delighted to be a part of such a group. Do you think her mother would have allowed her to be a part <sighs> of such a group? Probably not. Scarlet Maybe Fever in the Jones. summertime. In the summertime. Yeah. Well, now all I can do is give them blankets and tea and a place to camp. But she loved watching them. She put her energies to work to get a district nurse assigned to the area. She was concerned that people had to travel too far or through bad weather and they would be hurt not having medical attention. She decided that women were dying unnecessarily from complications of childbirth that just didn't have to happen. There were a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of hoops, but oh, we are used to hoops by now. Beatrix Potter from the publishing industry, line them up. I'll jump through them, followed by fundraising. But at last, she and her committee got their way, and she even let the nurse use a cottage rent-free on her property and gave her a bicycle for her rounds. And later, when cars were cars, bought her a car to use. Mm -hmm. I have to say, Beatrix Potter was not afraid of new technology. She was the first to use certain medications on her animals. She didn't mind buying a tractor to help, you know, with pulling trees or farming. She installed a phone. So she's not a fuddy-duddy stuck in the past. Useful items she adopted right Right. away. Well, she could see their value, and she had a lot on her plate at any given time. She was opening up museums to stop development and keep the farming in front of any tourists who came in. She was making paths through her property so the tourists could walk on them. She was doing a lot for her community. She was being pretty neighborly. She was kind of get off my lawn, though, like I said, and in, like, person. She hated most drop-in visitors that found her house, though she was strangely fond of American visitors. We were probably less proper, honestly, and more openly enthusiastic. Maybe that was the appeal. Although, one time she had a little visitor from the Bronx, 
And although Miss Potter did agree, she's perfectly well brought up, little girl, and so interesting, and I'm glad I met her, but I hope never to hear that accent again in my life. Yeah. But she was a dear child. Yeah, she said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a New York City librarian paid her a visit and told her how much Americans really loved not only her art, but her words. So she had always been known as a artist. But now she's seeing, oh, in America, they like me as an author, not just the illustrations. So she put together a book called Cicely Parsley's Nursery Rhymes that came out about a year after she had visited by this librarian. And another called The Fairy Caravan. That was only published in the United States because it was very autobiographical that she was even in it. She even wrote herself into it. It was a novel. It was, uh, you know, there's chapters. It was written for a little bit older audience, and she just didn't want all that autobiography stuff around in England. (laughs) As was a little known, I mean, I, I saw so few references to this book, but Sister Anne, which was a retelling of Blackbeard's story, it was a novella. Um, it was one of the chapters that had been dropped from Fairy Caravan, turned into a, a short novel. It was published. It didn't do very well. Her original biographer kind of trashed it. But I found online several academics who were kind of saying, let's take another look at this book because it it says more than you think it does. Well, and there is a book that I read called Winter Solstice by Rosamond Pilcher, and they kind of refer to it. One of the men was out late, and he came home, and he's like, have you been waiting up? And she's like, I've been sitting here at the window doing a Sister Anne. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so evidently there's somebody waiting for someone to come home from sea, sitting at the window, mm-hmm. just staring out. But they refer to that book. At the request of the prime minister's wife, oh ho, how high we are. At this point, the prime minister's wife asks you a question and a favor. Beatrix drew Christmas cards to use in a charity that encouraged better off, financially, children to contribute to buying a bed in a children's hospital for use by poorer children like a kid-sponsored program, Mm -hmm. what they would do is spend their pocket money on these little stamps and fill these little booklets. And when they were all done, their prize was one of these Christmas cards, and you couldn't get them anywhere else. This is the only way to get these, Mm -hmm. is to subscribe. And it did better than anyone in that charity ever thought would do. That's a wonder. It's it's like Patreon. (laughs) You You get something special if you do the work and make the contributions. Well, they were called Peter Rabbit Beds. But beside her work, conservation became her obsession. Developers were sniffing around, wanting to build janked-up little houses all over the place, or janked-up big houses all over the place, to carve up the landscape. On the lake, they wanted to develop the lakefront, and she was adamant against this. Um, She had been purchasing properties as they came up in the area uh, so that she could keep control over them. And her husband being the local solicitor that dealt with, as they say in Britain, conveyancing, Mm -hmm. which is from one person to the other, giving a piece of property. She kind of had a heads up early, which kind of enraged some of the neighbors because she always knew ahead of everybody and Uh got in there and bought it. It's kind of like, you know, when apartments come up for rent, you look at the uh, obituaries to see who died so you can see what apartments are going to be coming up for rent. Yep. Well, she was able to keep thousands of acres really pristine, and she had this tactic where she'd buy all the front lots to make the back ones from the lake worthless functionally because if there was no lake access, mm-hmm. 
nobody's buying a holiday house that has no lake access. Right. Or view. Mm. Strategery. She spent her money very well. She felt very strongly that not only the landscape, but the culture should be preserved. Her heritage breed of sheep, the Herdwicks. She felt like, I know they're not the best meat producers or the best wool producers. And, you know, sheep meat, mutton, was kind of falling out of fashion anyway. But it's part of our heritage. We have to preserve it. And um, she became a respected expert in animal husbandry. Here's another Laura Ingalls Wilder reference for you. (laughs) When Laura Ingalls Wilder first became a farm woman, she was a known authority on the raising of chickens. To the point where she used to write articles. She would win prizes for her chickens. Here we have another children's author becoming a well-respected authority figure on a certain kind of animal. Another female children's author. Although, I will say, one day, her helper, her shepherd, oh, she had a shepherd. <laughs> I employed a mason once. That's as close as I can get. <laughs> I don't mean the handshake mason. I mean the stone mason. <laughs> anyway, he came around the corner and found that she had nailed a lamb's head from the butchering to the fence and was sitting on a stump drawing it. <laughs> so while the drawing was very good, he said it gave him a start. <laughs> As it would. And even though her life seems to be devoted at the time to conservation and to maintaining the integrity of this community that she loves so much, she's still drawing. Even For her, her own pleasure. Yeah. And her eyesight's going and her hands are stiffening up and her hair technique was probably a little janked, but she still kept doing it. She became very adept at getting hold of decrepit or declining farmsteads and bringing them back to working life. Yew Tree Farm, which Downton Abbey fans at least recognize the name, there's a famous Yew Tree Farm. She made a tea room out of it, mm-hmm. out of part of it, right. to pay for itself so the tourists would come to the farm and have a lovely outing and have some tea. And it was a destination, and that mm-hmm. was very forward-thinking and creative. So Beatrix Potter... Always a familiar figure in the area um, now was walking with a stick in kind of old and threadbare clothes. Practical farm woman that she was. A little bent over. She had some pain. But she said, I would rather keep going until I drop as long as the work is well done. That's kind of why she decided she was going to stop painting commercially. She felt like her quality of work was deteriorating and she did not want to put out inferior work. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we closed this chapter. That's kind of how she felt. So she is getting older. She had some health problems. Before a female surgery, Beatrix had carefully written to many of her friends, not her little friends, they did not want to know this, her friends, her real friends, telling them how important to her they were, just in case. Mm -hmm. She'd been very thorough. Right. And so it was with more contentment than most that Beatrix, after a long bout of bronchitis, died on December 22nd, 1943, with William Helis by her side. Her ashes, per her wishes, were scattered around her property. Two years later, William joined her. Um, and per the details of her will, all of her property, over 4,000 acres with 17 farms, eight cottages, were all turned over to the National Trust for safekeeping. And there was a provision that a lot of the hilltop farms specific ones, had to have those Herdwick sheep on them. That was part of the trust. Mm -hmm. But she did have a little clause in there that says, as long as it is practical to do so, and that restriction was removed in 2005. 2005. That's from 1943. Yeah. There is a great memorial, although William 
and a trusted servant did scatter her ashes somewhere on the property, complete secret exactly where, the memorial she has is her cottage. Her cottage at Hilltop Farm, with the furniture, with the contents, and at first with all the original drawings, leave it as it was, mm -hmm. as a monument to her. Mm -hmm. The original drawings were moved after 40 or so years they were getting water damage, and so they're in a museum, safely right. humidified right. in the town, but it gets thousands of visitors a year. Mm -hmm. In 1951, the Lake District National Park was created, and Beatrix's bequests are all within its borders. She did a great thing. Mm -hmm. She had saved some of the most vulnerable land, too. Yeah, she would have been very proud of what happened. Her legacy lives on the way that she wanted it to. And I'm going to just say this up front. A lot of um, Beatrix's photographs and artwork is all held with a very tight copyright. So if you're going to our website to look at the show notes, I'll, I'll be putting things on there that I can, but it's not going to be a huge library of photographs and, and However, images. However, Pinterest, since it links back to original source material, can host those photos. Yeah, and I'll put so, a link to the, your Pinterest board on, yeah. on the show notes. Yeah. It was a very easy Pinterest board to put together, by the yeah. way. <laughs> I've never seen such a fast Pinterest board I, uh, in my whole life. 2016, the year that we're recording this, is the 150th anniversary of her birth. So there's going to be events going on around... Um, Great Britain, Where's Peter Rabbit is a musical onstage show with puppets kind of like The Lion King, and it's based on five of her stories. It, I read about it. It sounded a little dark maybe, but um, that's going to be going on. We'll link you up with ways that you can find out things that are going on this year in celebration of that. You can see, I believe, all the works have passed into the public domain now. And Gutenberg has, I, uh, I'll provide a link to Two Bad Mice, but from there, you can just go wherever oh, you want. Oh, I can provide a link right to Beatrix Potter's page. And actually, they're not all on there, which kind of surprised me. Well, Two Bad Mice is on there, mm -hmm. and, oh, Ginger and Pickles. I didn't talk about how much I liked Ginger and Pickles, <laughs> because it's just ridiculous. And modern kids, I don't know if they'd even understand it. They run a general store that has everything except things you really need, which mm -hmm. I thought was funny. And they always give people credit. And so they're the most popular store in town, although they're not that good at collecting the money. And so they go bankrupt. <laughs> it's pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was a cute story. Too. They do have a lot of them. Yeah. I did want to say that. Well, Ginger and Pickles is on there. there that's that all that matters. Just go read it. Um, so curiously, because I'm a nerd, I found how to articulate a fox skeleton, if you should wish to do so. Sweet! Yeah, so I've got a link. You can follow jakesbones.com to articulate your own fox skeleton, or you can simply go to Brookside Toy and Science here in Kansas City, and I don't think they'll sell you a whole skeleton, but they have skulls of every sort of animal you could think of that you can buy and just put on your shelf. In fact, Jet has a friend who's a girl who wanted nothing but that for her birthday. She wanted a collection of them, or she just wanted, she wanted one particular one? She wanted one particular skull. Wow. For her birthday. I think it was a badger. I forget exactly what. And I was like, you know, that girl's kind of a keeper. Yeah, I think so. Badger skull? Sure. <laughs> Gee, you're going to those. I went to the pretty sites. Um, the, <laughs> the Beatrix Potter Society has lots of info. They have publications. Um, their mission is to uphold the projects, the integrity of the inimitable and unique work of Beatrix Potter. 
and their e-newsletter is called Pottering About. So you can go there and sign up for that. We'll give you a link. Uh-huh. I know. Um, the Frederick Warren Company actually has a website called PeterRabbit.com. It's kind of commercial, though. Yeah. It's yeah. not very thorough. No. It's, there's not as much on there mm-hmm. as I thought there was going to be. They do. They have some links on the bottom that says 250th anniversary, and it only goes to a couple things. So I'm kind of hoping maybe somebody will get kicked in the butt and kind of beef up that site a little bit more. There is a site that's really, really linked to a book that I think we both used for research yeah. called uh, bpotter.com. Mm-hmm. It's a little more thorough and has yes. a little more research. Yeah, too. and it has quite. A, yeah, it has quite a bit. You can go to nationaltrust.org for the regular Hilltop Farm things, but there are a lot of events going on National Trust based all over the country. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, give a shout out to whoever's doing their website? It is beautiful. I mean, it's like a coffee table photograph book on your computer. The photographs are just gorgeous. If you want to be a super nerd and learn about the Herdwick sheep, you never know. It might be your thing. It might be your thing. I've got a link to the herdy.com UK website that you can read all about the history of this sheep and maybe understand a little bit about why Beatrix Potter was so intense about their preservation. There is a ballet (laughs) called The Tales of Beatrix Potter from 1971 that was filmed especially for television. Um, You can catch pieces of it on YouTube, and it's like the Broadway show Cats in that everyone is in full footy outfits. (laughs) There's that. It was a relatively well-acclaimed ballet. I can't imagine how hot you get in full fur during a whole ballet if you're a main character. I can't either. Um, If you are planning your trip um, to England, please know that Hilltop and Utree Farm are only open between February and October. So... That makes sense, because otherwise, it may be disappointing. Thousands of visitors through there, you know, traipsing through there. So and everything is as it was. They have to go back and inspect all the stuff in the house to make sure that it's not worn or faded or anything. I think it's one of those places where you have a timed ticket, too, mm-hmm. to oh, stagger yeah, people's arrival. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine filling the place up. With the, like a without, bus arrived and it's <laughs> over. <laughs> So there's also this tourist attraction. If you have little kids, I think this might be a good place to go. Um, their website's hopskipjump.com, and the attraction's called The World of Beatrix Potter. And there are plenty of children's events there. Mm-hmm. You know what? If you're going to stay here in the United States and you don't feel like leaving the couch, do I have a link for you? Because Nick Jr., which I'm sure anyone with children the appropriate age is probably sick of <laughs> by now, but Nick Jr. has this Peter Rabbit animated series And the creator of it explained that the character of Peter Rabbit is in some way based on Harry Potter. You know what? I was asking my daughter, who is a big Harry Potter fan, I'm like, is Harry Potter named after Beatrix Potter? And she started to look and then went off on another tangent. So, Well, that I don't know. I do know. Here's a third Jane Austen reference for you. Wow. I do know that the... The caretaker, Mr. Filch's cat, is named Mrs. Norris after the aunt, the meddlesome, angry aunt in Mansfield Park. Logically, you know, children, a British children's book author uh-huh. should pay homage to a former British children's book author. Well, all I know is that the creator of the new Nick Jr. Peter Rabbit series literally said that there is a main char- character rabbit, a boy sidekick rabbit, and a girl rabbit named Lily... That's Harry Potter's mother. 
purposely to give that same kind of dynamic and with similar characterizations. So there's the only Potter connection I can verify. (laughs) You can stay. You, too, can stay at East White Country House. I'll give you the link. Looks cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the Victoria and Albert Museum has um, an exhibit online at this point. I believe it was a real exhibit at one point, but now it's moved to the realm of the virtual called Place as Inspiration, Beatrix Potter. Also, you can join the Beatrix Potter Society U.S. Membership is 31 pounds, and this morning, that means 53 bucks for you. As of this morning. You know, it changes every day. And you get some newsletters and information about events and that kind of thing for your money. And it might be cool if you're a Potter fan mm-hmm. to say that you're a member of such. Card-carrying member. I wonder if they give you a card. Okay, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, let's do the books first. Okay. There is a book. Then unless you're super, super duper interested, you know, just look it up online. But remember that mushroom book? Remember all those pictures that she drew, the hundreds and hundreds of pictures that sat with a ribbon around them for so long? Somebody finally used them in 1967 to illustrate a book. Dr. Finley wrote a book called Wayside and Woodland Fungi from 1967, and he used her drawings. And in France, the book is simply called Champignon. Whoa, I'm dazzled. (laughs) So I'm glad they finally saw the light of day. Speaking of seeing the light of day, there's been a discovery. Kitty in Boots, a unpublished work of Beatrix Potter's. It was unfinished, too. There's only, I do believe, one illustration that was actually done by Beatrix Potter associated with this manuscript. So they've got an enterprising new artist to fill in and uh, make it possible to publish. And that should be coming out this year. I know they're hurrying because of the 150th anniversary marketing possibilities. And actually, reading about that is why we're talking about it today. Because we just posted something on our Facebook page about this discovery, and you all were so excited. You kept saying, we can't wait to hear your beard. We really didn't plan on covering her until that conversation. Then we're like, yes, let's look into her. And long, long ago, Long, long ago, my mother-in-law gave me a copy of a movie starring Renee Zellweger called Beatrix Potter. So old, in fact, that it's exclusive to Blockbuster, if anybody remembers that. So that was a little spark that had been, hmm, just an ember for some time in me, too. So thanks to Sue Graham for giving me that movie. It really came in handy. Yeah, I think it was a really pretty movie. I have... A few problems with it in that I saw a lot of Bridget Jones in the Renee Zellweger characterization of Beatrix Potter, and I did not like the animation. Hmm. See, I saw a lot of Beatrix Potter. So you did like it? No, I didn't dislike the movie. No, I did like it. And I think they also conflated... She was friends with Norman's sister, but I think they conflated Norman's sister with this cousin of hers that she had had that was kind of a suffragist and Mm -hmm. an outspoken you know, atheist and this and that. And I think they kind of conflated those two ladies, as one would for narrative economy in a movie. To make a more interesting character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Are we at Bookland? I think we're at Bookland. There is a series of books. They're called Who Was and Then Somebody. Who Was Beatrix Potter? It's The covers all look the same. There's a whole series of them. They're um, biographies about, and well, this one's about Beatrix Potter, but my 11-year-old son is obsessed with these books. I mean, he, he burns through them. I bought him a few, and they were read within two hours. He was like, oh, that was so good. I'm done. It's a great series. He's a reader, but um, for kids who like biographies, it's a 
with Siri. Very disturbed by that drawing on the and cover. And this is what all this is what all the covers look like. It's it's an illustration, and the head is kind of extremely exaggerated. Um, but they all look like that. It, you can line them up. They, all, I mean, obviously they're not all Beatrix Potter, but whoever they are. <laughs> I'm judging a book by its cover. You totally are. What? Um, look at her hat. It's lovely. Look at all those flowers in her hat. I can't. She looks like um, <laughs> she looks like the Mrs. What is her name? The one that stole Toto. Oh, Gulch. Oh yeah. She looks like Miss Gulch. Yeah, it doesn't really look like Beatrix Potter, mm-hmm. but. There you go. Don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Although, if you want to judge a book by its cover, there's Beatrix Potter, A Life in Nature by Linda Year. It is a pretty cover, isn't it? It is. It's very thorough. It's at least two inches thick. Uses a lot of, I mean, pretty much uses everyone who'd ever written a book about her to make this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, yeah. And, they, and she references them. Yeah, though. yeah. No, it's, yeah. Not, it's not plagiarism. Yeah, she, it's yeah. a very thoroughly researched mm-hmm. book. But oh. it's very, very, very large. I have to say I loved, now it only goes up to kind of her meeting William Halas, but The Magic Years of Beatrix Potter by Margaret Lane. So delightful, so easy to read, full of illustrations on almost every page, as Beatrix would have liked. Um, and this person was able to get to some primary sources, some neighbors and that kind of thing, because it was written so long ago. So this book, The Magic Years of Beatrix Potter by Margaret Lane, was my favorite to use, although I did use the Lindeler book, yeah. too. Um, speaking of primary sources, those journals that she kept with her secret code, the code that was, wasn't broken until the 1950s, um, <laughs> have all been put together into a extraordinarily heavy book. Feel how heavy that book is. Yeah. Maybe I, they I, use thin paper. I don't know. Um, um, yeah. I don't know what it is, but... Um, how many pages is that book? The reason I'm oh, asking is okay. there was a count of 800 pages. Handwritten, and I wondered how many it ended up oh, printed. Oh, uh, 450. Well, that makes sense, because they were handwritten, and now they're not. Yeah. I didn't read it as thoroughly as I would have liked to, because there is so much here. But the parts that I did read, I really enjoyed it. It's, you know, it, you can hear her in, in your ear, which is, I love that. Do you, have, do you have another book? Oh, yeah, that one. Well, I do. Now, for the gardener among you, I, you know, I'm an aspiring gardener. I'm so good at basil, and I'm super good at hydrangeas. Anything <laughs> else is, as they say, a crapshoot. <laughs> this was actually my favorite book. Yeah, it's um, very laden with pictures of her garden and, by season also, it's called Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Classic Children's Tales by Marta McDowell. And you should read it, like, if you're hearing this just as we're posting it, you should read it so that you, it will influence your gardening plans this summer. Mm. <laughs> well, those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, that's true. Look at you bending pages. <gasps> I am the master of books. They are not the masters of me. <laughs> that is all I have to say about that. Wow. Uh, there is an, another lovely... I mean, there are so many books about her out there. You could probably find ones that that we never even encountered. At Home with Beatrix Potter, the creator of Peter Rabbit by Susan um, Denier. It's a coffee table book, just jam-packed. It's like, it makes you want to go visit the Lake District because it's just so beautiful. I, well, and it wouldn't have been, it would not have been had Beatrix Potter not taken a hold. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, I yes, I completely agree. It would be full of little, horrible cottages. Ticky-tacky. With a access to a boat ramp. 
So in closing, I guess that brings us to the end of all of our voluminous links that we have. I know. Did we mention that that movie is from 2006? Did we mention who was in it? Wasn't it 2006? 2006, yeah. Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor as Norman. Oh, I did cry. I did cry. Yeah, there's a point where I cry. And I think I cried when she called him Norman. I don't even think it was like the moment I didn't cry. I cried when she stopped calling him Mr. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I'm a nerd. Okay. (laughs) So in closing, let me just, I want to read a little bit straight from Linda Lear's Beatrix Potter, A Life in Nature, because I think she summed it up. Beatrix Potter brought nature back into the English imagination with her books and her illustrations. She wrote most of them at a time when nature was viewed as something of little value, when the plunder of nature was more popular than its preservation. Through her passionate and imaginative stewardship of the land, she challenged others to think about preservation. Imagination allowed Beatrix Potter to value the natural world and to share the treasures she found in the Lake District and its culture. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. You can find us in all the usual places on social media. We're sort of secretly behind the scenes on Instagram now. There's actually photos of Susan, Beckett, and Henry the Cat. Picture how your nights would be Sleeping soundly Softly as a moonlight Picture all the dreams you'll keep Breathing freely Every night's a picture girl